Do you remember the show All in the Family? Some of you young kids might not remember it, but, uh, but it, it, was, uh, uh, it, it was a really important show for a lot of people. Um, it, it opened with Archie and Edith Bunker singing with these really, well, he's just like a Brooklyn boy and she is like a squawking hen. Uh, uh, and in in the theme song, boy, the way Glenn Miller played songs that made the hit per, and then rah, and it ends with those were the days. Those were the days. It was groundbreaking for its time with the subjects that it it hit. A working class family in the '70s struggling to accept the changes of modern society, of the daughter marrying a man of Polish descent that Archie liked to call Meathead. Uh, he referred to his wife as Dingbat over and over, and you think, wow, <laughs> that, that's pretty challenging in today's world. But what's even more striking is what they were longing for was a return to the good old days, back when things were easier and simpler and cleaner. In our text today, Luke kind of takes us back to what seems to be an idealized version or picture, maybe even sanitized in the minds of some, of what the early church would have looked like. By the time Luke is writing, many of the principal characters would have been killed, martyred. Paul, when he finishes this book and perhaps has a mind to continue with a third volume, we don't know. Luke, Acts, and then volume three. Paul's in prison, has been in prison for years. No hope of getting out. This fledgling church that began with such a bang, has been through so many difficulties and so many challenges. And for us within the Restoration Movement, we look at these verses that we're going to read and think, that's the ideal. That's the church we want to restore. That's who we want to be. But Luke isn't painting some idyllic pie-in-the-sky picture of an unrealistic group of people. He's unflinchingly honest with what was happening. And before we get too comfortable with the first verses we're going to read at the end of chapter 4, we crash into chapter 5 and we find a story that's Disturbing to say the least. Perhaps one of the most horrific stories that we can find in the New Testament and especially in the book of Acts outside of the violence committed against Jesus. And and so it's troubling. But I think Luke is doing something here that is valuable for us as we think about what it means to be the church. The church that began the first century and the church that continues today. So I'm going to read from uh, Acts chapter 4, 
uh, verses 32 and following. We'll continue the reading through uh, chapter 5, verse 11. It should be on the screen. You can look for it on your Bible uh, or uh, on your app or in your Bibles. Uh, Acts 4.32. All the believers, we're talking about over 5,000 at this point, from different countries and different ethnicities, all of them Jews, all the believers were united in heart and mind. And they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Now that's the description. It sounds pretty nice. Right. Especially if you were a person that would have had needs. But to think that God was acting in such a powerful way would have encouraged and strengthened. And so to give an example of the kind of sharing that existed among this unified group of people, Luke is going to tell us about Barnabas, but then he's going to tell us about another situation with a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. So verse 36 of chapter 4 acts, for instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the land of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. Chapter 5, verse 1, but there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell, as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. Verse 7, about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door and they will carry you out also. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Pretty troubling text. One that brings up a lot of questions and perhaps even a lot of motions. Let's begin by kind of unpacking what we have in chapter 4. You know, this description, this summary sounds very similar to the type of, the kind of summary that Luke gave in chapter 2, 
where everyone was united, nobody had any needs, they were all sharing what they had, the community's needs were being met. And, and, and it doesn't take us long to realize that Luke is kind of following up on what he did in chapter 4 of the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, where Jesus preached his first sermon and he quoted from Isaiah chapter 61 and said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to then preach the gospel to the poor, to announce that the ill ones will be healed and that the year of the Lord's favor has come. Well, the year of the Lord's favor was a way to refer to the year of Jubilee. That year when all debts would be canceled, all the land that you had to give up because you couldn't pay your mortgage or you couldn't provide enough fruits and vegetables to pay the, uh, the, the owner and you get booted off the land. At the year of Jubilee, everything would go back to zero. You would start with a clean slate. You would be back on the property that your parents or your grandparents handed down through the family inheritance and you would get to start over. And Luke is wanting to make sure we understand that what is happening with the church is a continuation of what Jesus started and what his ministry looked like. It's surprising that verse 32 begins with all the believers were united in mind and heart. Because when I think of being united... And when I think of what unity means, my mind tends to think about like doctrinal issues that we all agree on the same points. And, and, and whenever there are issues that allow the opportunity for different perspectives and different opinions and different understandings of Scripture, we hear the call, yeah, but we've got to be united. Unity is extremely important. And that's one of the things that the restoration, the restoration movement has prided itself on. We are a unity movement. The forefathers of this particular fellowship, Alexander Campbell, Barton W. Stone, and others, what they hoped was to unify Christians under one umbrella, Christians of every stripe, so that together we could fulfill God's purposes and fulfill God's mission on this earth. So what's surprising is that Luke, when he talks about unity here, is not talking about doctrine. He's talking about practice. He's talking about generosity and sharing. And that's what he says is the sign of unity, at least from this text. And so whatever we might think about how we agree or disagree on disputable matters and matters of opinion, one thing that Luke wants to make overtly clear, that one of the ways we show that we are united and we are one people is by the way we share our resources with one another. There was great power in the preaching and there was great grace among the people. The word great is mega. And that's where you get megaphone and all those other words that start with mega. Mega market. Not Megan. Mega market. Yeah. Great power. Mega power. Mega grace. God's spirit has fallen on his people 
and now they are operating with a strength and a power that they didn't know they had. And we've already seen this power revealed in the way that it healed a lame man and gave him the ability to walk. And now the Spirit fills this man named Barnabas and gives him the courage and the strength and the ability to bring this money that he sold from this land before the apostles. Barnabas wanted to do his part to fulfill the Old Testament text in Deuteronomy that says, In this new community of faith, there shall be no poor among you. And it's a wonderful picture, but it's not the full picture. In addition to the spirit of God working among his people, there was another spirit. Another spirit that had been around since the beginning or close to it. Another spirit that had been around Jesus and his followers. And now this spirit, the spirit of the evil one, the spirit of Satan, the spirit of the devil. Now is at work in the lives of two believers named Ananias and Sapphira. And what Luke is wanting to paint for us is this, if you will, cosmic battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. This is like all of your Star Wars types of movies uh, taken to a whole different level. But, but this is just about money, right? This is just about this church. Well, I think what Luke is trying to say is this goes way beyond issues about money. There's something else happening here. And, and if we can understand a little bit of what's happening, that might help us understand the severe reaction that comes upon, we could even say punishment that comes upon Ananias and Sapphira. You know, when we first hear of Ananias and Sapphira, we think, well, here are two people who are set up for success. Uh, they, they have land. They're in the same socioeconomic level as Barnabas. They've got extra land. Now, the early church didn't believe that you had to sell the house that you were living in. Later on in the book of Acts, we're going to read that they were meeting in different people's homes and different people's houses. So we know they kept their property. Not everybody sold everything they had. But if you had an extra piece of land, maybe an inheritance, and perhaps Barnabas had a piece of land from Cyprus that had been handed down by his family. But both he and Ananias are in the same group. And much like Joseph was given a nickname, Ananias, uh, 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 Barnabas. If we knew Greek, we would know that Ananias's name means God is gracious. And Sapphira's name means beautiful. The early listeners and readers would think, well, those are kind of strange names for the people they kind of turned out to be. The, the incongruity of their names and their lifestyle and their actions is the beginning of this tension that we feel in the text. Something is going on here, and it's not just about money. And it's not just about sin. I mean, you know, we would be happy for Ananias and Sapphira to come forward and confess their sin. And we say, yeah, you're forgiven. All good. 
I mean, repent and whatever that looks like. Maybe give the money that you said you were going to. Or, or admit that you lied and just kind of move on. We, we'd be happy to do that. But, but that's not what happens. I mean, it seems like such a severe reaction. Now, the scriptures never come out and say that God struck them dead. It doesn't say that Peter struck them dead. But the way Luke presents the narrative, it would be hard not to come to that conclusion. We don't know. I mean, if we did an autopsy, it might have been an aneurysm, heart attack. I don't know. But that's not the point. Over and over through Scripture, we read how people who sinned could be restored. So what's different here? What's happening here? And I think one of the things that Luke wants to point out is with what was happening behind this initial facade of the money and the land issue, whatever was happening was going to result in death. The death of something or someone. And in this case, we have this judgment on these two individuals and it almost seems like if they wouldn't have died, then what was going to die was the actual community itself. Because whatever is happening is so significant and so drastic and severe that it requires a drastic and severe reaction. We find a similar kind of situation right before the people of Israel go into the promised land back in Joshua chapter 7. A guy named Achan. When you read the Hebrew text in Greek, the version or the translation called the Septuagint, the same word is used to describe these actions. There's an embezzlement of funds. But, but it goes beyond the specific money issue. There's something else happening. And as the people of Israel are ready to enter into the promised land, God wanted to send a message. And as the early church was ready to launch into its mission to reach the world, there was something that needed to take place within them as a community. Now, I don't know if you've ever wondered why... Jesus seemed so compassionate and tender towards tax collectors and people like prostitutes. And yet he was so harsh, it seems, with Pharisees. They were a sect of the Jews. They were a group of Jews who took following God very seriously. As we've mentioned in other moments, these guys would be like great neighbors. They paid their bills. They kept their yard clean. They didn't let their dogs go to the bathroom on your yard. They, these were good-hearted people. And yet Jesus reserved some of his harshest words for them. And it's always a bit odd. Because you've got some people here who are very clearly sinners. Tax collectors. Women of ill repute women of the night, however you want to refer to them. And evidently what Jesus is trying to say 
And I think maybe what Luke is trying to pick up on is, you know, there's some sins that we observe overtly that we would put in the these are the bad people category. But there's other sins that are hidden and actually even more deadly than the ones that we can see with our eyes. And so we would be quick to judge certain individuals for their sins. And Jesus says, yeah, but what's really more deadly are the people that are hiding their sin. And and this hiding of sin, this spiritual pretense, is evidently such a deadly condition that God wants to make sure that not only the early church, but the church from that point on understands hypocrisy and pretending to be one thing on the outside and being something else on the inside is much more upsetting to God than we could ever begin to imagine. Because something dies. Something dies. See, see, we think that, well, you know, like Peter, he, he hung out with the Gentiles until some Jews showed up and they said, oh, no, I'm not going to hang out with them. And, okay, no harm, no foul, right? Okay, well, Paul called him on the carpet in Scripture so that all of us knows that Peter was acting like a hypocrite. But something dies, something in the community that bond and that trust and that transparency and that connection. And evidently, God wanted to make sure that we, that they and we as God's people, understood that that when we have our own religious, members of our own religious community, acting in a way where it looks like we're One thing to one group of people and something else. And this isn't Paul becoming all things to all people. This is hiding who we are. That this double standard, James refers to as a a person with with a double-minded heart. Both Jesus and Luke want to make sure we understand that this this is serious. Because it's killing the life of the community. It's much deeper and the struggle is much more fierce than we could ever imagine. This is the cosmic battle for the heart of the community. And it's about lies and deception. Peter makes it clear when he's talking to Ananias, you didn't have to lie. First of all, you didn't have to sell the land. Everybody kept some land. And then to come up with this story Evidently, he saw how people responded to Barnabas and thought, man, I want some of that for me. But I've got these bills. I've got this stuff. And so I'm going to pretend like I'm something so that everyone would think I'm a great person. But then deep down, I'm going to set it aside. One author suggests that this type of deception And lying, this type of hypocrisy, is actually the opposite of the gift of tongues. The the gift of tongues came upon people so that all people could hear the truth. And all people would have access to God's message and God's grace. 
And a spirit of deception stops that from happening. This basic lack of integrity that had now shown up among the community had the power to destroy it and derail the Christian church. And so God needed to take drastic actions. Now, in your and my life, sins of pride, hypocrisy, lying, deceit, very rarely end with the death of the perpetrator. And perhaps we've become too comfortable with some of those ideas, but what Luke wants to communicate, I believe, is that every time that happens, something dies. Something dies. And so Paul will later tell the Ephesian church, don't lie to one another. Because something dies when you lie. Something about your innocence and your holiness and your connectedness. So so as we continue as a church that's following Jesus, as we continue on this path of restoring the biblical church, First of all, let's not be blinded by nostalgia and thinking, oh, those were the good old days. Well, maybe. (laughs) But those good old days had a whole lot of yucky days, too. And the good old days of the 1940s and 50s, for some, might have been good old days. For others of our brothers and sisters were horrible, horrible days. Nostalgia is not what should be our guide And as we think about what it means to be the church and what it means to be unified as a church, let's not forget what Luke and how Luke defines it (laughs) had all things in common. There was no needy among them. That's what makes up a unified church. And then the openness and the transparency and the honesty that exists, that's part of also of a unified church. If we don't live together and stand together, we'll die separately. Barbara Brockhoff in her book, Grapes of Wrath or Grace, tells this story. A group of American tourists were taking a bus tour in Rome and they were led by an English speaking guide. Their first stop was a basilica in a piazza, uh, uh, which was surrounded by several lanes of relentless Roman traffic. If you've seen the pictures, you know, some of you have been to Italy and you know what the traffic looks like in Italy. After they were all safely dropped off, the group climbed the steps for a tour of that particular church building. Then as they spread out to board the bus, which was now parked across the street from the church, The guide frantically stopped them and shouted at them to stay together. He says, if you cross one by one, they'll hit you one by one. (laughs) But if you cross together, they think that you'll hurt their car and they won't hit you. (laughs) Divided we fall, united we stand. God bless your day.